Welcome to the QI Chat Room. I'm your host, Max Perret. This podcast is brought to you by the Redwood Community Health Coalition, or RCHC for short. We are a network of community health centers in a wellness education nonprofit across Marin, Sonoma, Napa, and Yolo counties in California. We formed in 1994 with a mission to improve access to and the quality of care provided for uninsured and underserved people. We've been hosting these podcasts since the fall of 2019, and we hope you join us as we share the latest in health topics. Today we are joined by Christina Zuniga, Program Manager for Health Leads. Uh, Christina is working to advance health outcomes for underserved communities, uh, and today is our guest host in a conversation talking about authentic community engagement. Christina? Thanks, Max. Um, Hello, all. Thank you for joining us today in our discussion on authentic community engagement and partnership. I'm your host, Christina Zuniga, Program Manager at Health Leads. Today's guest speakers are Brenda Aguilera, Director of Community Transformation, and her colleague, Carlos Arceo, Regional Program Project Manager for Para Los Niños. So, welcome, guys. Um, In today's conversation, um, we're going to be exploring around uh, Community Information Exchanges, also known as CIE. So there's uh, many communities across the country that are considering the implementation of CIEs, a model established by 211 San Diego to advance community health. Many organizations are exploring the design of equity-anchored, CIE-inspired networks, and a huge part of the CIEs is having this community governance structure, which requires true authentic community engagement and partnership. So before we kick off the conversation, why don't we start by introducing yourselves. Tell me a bit about your role, your background, and why don't we start with you, Brenda, and then we can pass it on to Carlos. Thank you, Christina. So my name is Brenda Aguilera, and I'm the Director of Community Transformation at Para Los Niños. And uh, I oversee our, collabor- our community collaboratives across the organization. Um, uh, currently, we're supporting uh, what we call Best Start Region 1, which is funded by First Five Los Angeles. And it's a, they're all placed, they were place-based initiatives and no longer initiatives um, 10 years ago. Uh, we started with Metro Los Angeles. Uh, a collaborative of over close to 600 um, stakeholders, primarily community residents that work closely with uh, community organizations, nonprofit organizations, public and private institutions. And they work together to identify um, the com- their community strengths and barriers. And they identify, they design uh, strategies to address those barriers. And as of 2018, we scaled uh, across what we now call Best Start Region 1. That includes Best Start East LA, Best Start South El Monte El Monte, and Best Start Southeast LA in partnership with uh, a number of organizations, uh, including Chow 360 and our regional partners that support with capacity building need, um, support. Um, and we uh, also support with, like, advocacy efforts, communications efforts, evaluation efforts, like everything that um, a strong partnership needs to be able to succeed in their, in their efforts. Great. Thanks, Brenda. Carlos? 
Yeah, first of all, thanks for having us, Christina. I really appreciate being here. I mean, I think it's it's hard not to say it, but I feel like whatever Brenda said, I support that. <laughs> you know, so it's like <laughs> a lot of a lot of my work is, um, you know, I arrived at Para Los Niños two years ago, and um, and it was one of those things where, like, when I arrived here, I really, really immediately um, gravitated towards the mission. And the the purpose and the and the lens and the analysis by which Brenda and the team have done the work for such a long time, you know, which is very connected to what we're going to talk about today. But in terms of like this idea of authentic partnership with communities, so um, my my role is to support all of Region One, working with um, with the with our partner with Child Three Hundred and Sixty, um, with the team, the staff and also with the residents and also with the organizations that we partner with to build everyone's collective capacity to, um, to move this partnership forward and to ensure that the conditions that create the conditions that are created are addressed directly at the root um, and ensuring that all of us are, are doing that together. Um, and what that means is, you know, everyone interrogates their role in that and, um, and how we can change to better, um, to ensure that our communities look like what we need them to look like moving forward. So I'll stop there. Perfect. Well, thank you guys. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm, I'm so excited to really, you know, have this conversation around authentic community partnership, which is extremely important, important and crucial um, in the work that we do. So before we even take a deeper dive, you know, you hear words thrown around like community engagement, outreach, participation, but can we talk about how you define community engagement versus partnership and why that is important? I, I could begin. Um, so the way that we define it, I think what we've, even in ourselves, right, about over 10 years ago, I think we all had like a very traditional way of part, uh, and working with community residents. Um, and it was more of a very transactional uh, type of approach. So there's, um, you know, there's uh, the pro, you know we would provide services and programs and, and resources um, with the hopes that people, the the community residents, and when I say community residents, that includes parents, caregivers, um, anyone that's living and experiencing life in these communities that we serve. Uh, so we had a, you know, we were hoping that they could uh, access those services um, to hopefully just, you know, have better outcomes in life. Um, but we need. We also learned that it was. There's also a lot of um, in our practices that there was a lot of extraction as well. So we surveyed them to be able to uh, share information with our funders about our success. Um, but it wasn't deep enough to really truly understand. It didn't really help us and inform us about whether our services were effective or if they were even needed. Um, so I think for. Um, for us, uh, you know, with um, I want to, say, and I do, I, we do recognize that now there's more funders and foundations that are starting to say that they want programs and services to be informed by residents' data. Um, you know, that's that is that is a, a we've definitely seen a change at least in, in the in the tone in the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic. There's been a lot of opportunities to be able to apply for funds that really get at that. Uh, but what we still start to observe is that the the people that were that are most impacted are missing in that process. Um, so, you know, there 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 is still a very transactional way of treating data, um, and it's, you know, there's still in, in the way that it's not including residents in the entire process. Uh, so, for us, authentic partnership means that they're with us in every step of the process um, as thought partners uh, and also as implementation partners. 
Thanks for that distinction. Um, Carlos, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add, I think Brenda covered it really well, but I think when I think about engagement, I think about like a series of one-offs, right? Like um, I'll engage with you when it's time to submit this report. I'll engage with you when I, so that I can say that I talked to you before I responded to you. So I think what happens, or at least what I observe in my opinion, is that there's um, checkboxes that need to be checked off, um, whether it be for funders, whether it be internally. But I think a, a series of checkboxes is not the spirit of what it is that we're trying to do. And I think for us, partnership means just that. It means in, um, it means partnership over time. You know, we have a lot of, uh, we as service providers as well, like um, I think when you think about engagement, you think like we'll have the condition significantly shifted in the last 25 to you know 50 years. And what you realize is that they really haven't. So then you think if engagement is what has been done for 25 to 50 years and the conditions haven't changed, then that's an indicator that engagement is not good enough. So, so again, for us, um, partnership means just that. And I also want to be really clear that it's not this infantilizing or tokenizing type of partnership where you say the residents are the experts of everything. No, residents are not experts of everything, just like experts on medicine are experts on medicine, but not experts on other things. So part of the reason um, and the drive to have partnerships is so that we bring the best thinking from everybody participating in what the conditions for our communities will look like. So to us, that's what real partnership looks like. Thank you for that. that lovely distinction. I think it's important for organizations to um, really know the difference and work, work towards the partnership. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, I would love to now begin to discuss, you know, and, and begin talking about your journey on authentic community partnership and that process, right? So your organization underwent this huge transformation to have an infrastructure built for community partnership to happen. Um, so right, Brenda, you, you know, you stated earlier that this, it was more of a transactional, you know, kind of relationship. And so I would love for you to take, take us on that journey and what did that entail for your organization to, to build that infrastructure for, you know, authentic community partnership to happen? Thanks, Christina. So uh, we are, you know, Palo de los Niños began in 1980. Uh, so we're a 41-year-old organization. Um, and we we provide a lot of wraparound services, so everything from like early education. We have charter schools that support um, school age, all school age children. We have our mental health department, our uh, youth workforce workforce programs, uh, family services, um, and you know we were we were providing a lot of important services um, since the very beginning that helped uh, to support the families um, that were experiencing like the 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 most challenges in their communities. Um, but again, I, I think about 12 years ago, we came to the realization that no matter how many services or programs we provided, we needed to address the conditions that created the outcomes that required these types of resources and programs for the families. Um, and, and especially not just for the families that we work with, but I, I, you know, we also think about the, the surrounding families that exist in these communities as well. Uh, so, I think that was that was a, a, a big um, one of the major shifts in the way that we started to think about uh, the way that we were serving or like what it meant to truly serve. So we in 2009, um, you know, we worked in partnership with First 5LA to form this collaborative that was made up of community residents and partner organizations. We had about maybe anywhere from like 25 to 30 organizations that we had already traditionally partnered with them through our service um, and uh, programs, 
Uh, and we were able to identify like a handful of, of community residents to form this partnership. Um, but they, you know, they are traditionally, I think most of us are part of coalitions, collaboratives, you know, that are, that are, um, that are supported by a lot of like the same folks, you know, in, in these spaces. Um, but we knew that if in order for things to truly be different, we had to create um, even our own conditions so that residents were at the forefront of all of our efforts. Residents had to make the ultimate decisions in all of our efforts. They ha- it had to be informed by their experiences and the experiences of the surrounding communities. Um, so we developed like our bylaws that really spoke to that and that ensured that all the decisions reflected that. Um, and then we created opportunities like uh, for folks and the residents particularly to lead all of our efforts. So it was almost like taking our own um, roles and uh, we started to define them in paper and then we started to build and enhance and strengthen people's capacity to adopt them and to be able to lead the efforts. So we had to really think about like, how do we sustain this by starting to be intentional about, about shifting our role and our our um, our uh, capacities to the folks that are going to lead this. Um, so we started to put the, those those pieces in, in in place by really early on. I want to say by 2010, we started to truly articulate it. Um, and at the time, we we only had like a five year guaranteed contract, which is pretty amazing to even have a five year contract because you see how foundations come in and just invest. They think it's an investment to come in, you know, to invest in for two years possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I'm really thankful to for, for First Five for being um, just, uh, I think they were, you know, they had a bigger, they continue to have a bigger vision around this. Um, so again, um, our goal was to support the partnership to be able to uh, identify, you know, all the strategies to that are, were going to be designed to address the systemic barriers that, that impacted these families. Um, and then, um, but in the role, what we again did is we ensured that the residents and the organizations were also, you know, designing strategies that would address those impacts. Um, they, their job is also to implement the strategies, to communicate about the strategies, to mobilize resources, mobilize people, um, and to evaluate all their efforts. And it's very cyclical. We use the popular education methodology. So you see this happening throughout the process. There's no beginning. There's no end. It's it's a continuum of the work. And can, can you tell, tell tell the audience what popular education is briefly? Carlos, do you want to share? I mean, I, I'll give you the what um, how I was trained, but it's like this idea that there isn't in society there are not teachers that we are all educators and we are all learners simultaneously. It's the idea that um, no one comes in and dictates to anyone else. I think there's um, this idea of what they call the traditional um, American education system relies on the system of banking methodology. It's this idea that you go and you sit in in a room and a a person who has been anointed the educator um, drops coins into the bank that is your head. (laughs) Your piggy bank is your head. Uh, So the idea is that information sits with one person, that person shares it with someone else or puts it into your piggy bank, and that your responsibility is to simply repeat that information. Uh, It's it's started by Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator, um, a long, long time ago, and it was used specifically for liberatory movements. It was created specifically to move people 
to hold their power, to exercise their power, and to self-determine for their communities. So that involves a lot of, um, you know, a lot of dialogue. It involves a lot of surfacing of people's lived experiences. And once you surface those lived experiences, is is doing a thematic analysis. Hey, what I thought was only happening to me, I'm noticing is happening to everyone in our community. So what does that mean? That means that this is not isolated to me. And then you use that information and that learning to continue your movement towards um, transformation. So that's how I would define it. Perfect. And then, you know, we started to really discuss the building the infrastructure for, you know, the, the institution, right, to be able to, to welcome authentic community partnership. But can you talk about the internal and individual process? Um, what changes do you have to make individually um, for this to happen, right? We know that, that there, there needs to be a, a mind shift, there needs to be a behavioral shift in order for, you know, for changes to happen um, as a collective. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can both talk about your individual journeys um, that you both took to prepare yourselves for to, to welcome this, this authentic community partnership process and, and to keep it for this long and to, to really continue to uplift it. So can you talk about that process? You're, it's like you're trying to make people cry, Christina. No, I mean, I mean, and I'll tell you, and but I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why because you know, I um, I'll I'll give you my quick bio really, really quickly. But it's really, it's really shaped my own realization and how I do work within the community. But I mean, I I grew up a son of immigrant parents who were undocumented for a large part of my life, and um, and with the and always with the value of getting an education, getting an education. That's what my parents sacrificed so much to get here. So much so that my own personal identity was completely invested in, in getting an education. So when I struggled as an undergrad at, at UC Berkeley, I internalized the blame for that. Um, I, that led to depression, to suicidal ideation even, um, because I internalized. I said, this is, a, this is inherently a failure of character, a failure of intellect. Um, and what I didn't realize until I took the right classes and I was made aware and my consciousness was raised and challenged was that I grew up in a neighborhood where the schools weren't that good. I grew up in in a neighborhood where I can grow, I can go to class, do my homework before class started, literally five minutes before and be a straight A student by the time I graduated high school. So much so that I was able to get into a school like Berkeley. Um, So, but that idea, the idea that there was conditions that created the outcome in this case, me, the outcome it could have been really dangerous for me if I would have internalized it and said, this is all my fault. Now, mind you, I, I can accept personal responsibility. There was things that I did personally that contributed to that, but there was also conditions that were in place that kept that in place. So I, I, I go all the way back to say that this is, these are some of the biases that I needed to challenge within myself as I started doing this work. Um, and then that meant, how do I challenge them for myself? How do I support others in seeing that their conditions are not their fault, that there are things that are occurring societally that have been happening for generations, for hundreds of years, that have created the outcomes, some would say even on, on purpose, where you have a permanent working class and a permanent benefited class that benefits from the work of the labor of the folks that are, that are meant to serve them. So I think for me, those things needed to change. And what that also means, I think, if you extend that line of thinking to a service provider, I think for a lot of us, sometimes we have this idea that there are people in our communities who have 
and who, who, you know, some people say the haves and the have nots. The way I say it is like people who have things, who have resources, who have everything that they need. And there's people who don't. And I think for some folks, I think there needs to be a realization that the reason they don't have those things is not an inherent lack of, of, um, of, of um, deserving it. Right. Um, and I think there is some of that. I think for some people, when they see a community that's, um, that's suffering through the impacts of oppression, they will blame that community. And they will typically look at things like race, gender, sexuality, um, immigration status, education access. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll um, connect those as a, as a fault in character, um, not just for that person, but for the community. So that thinking needs to fundamentally change. Otherwise, we, as we're saying that we want to challenge the conditions that create those outcomes for our communities, are actually contributing to the harm every single day. So I'll start there just in terms of just like a fundamental change in thinking that needs to occur in our mental models. Yeah, beautifully said. I mean, you know, there, there is that, um, what, I forgot how it goes, but I think something around, you know, systems are designed to give the outcome that it's designed to give. Um, so when you mentioned the, the purpose, on purpose thing, I think we need to really look at, at design systems and really rebuild and redesign um, so that it, it gives, you know, all people um, better outcomes. Brenda, is there anything you'd like to add um, in your individual process? I think similar to Carlos, um, you know, I grew up in Pico Union. Um, I remember we had, a, you know, being exposed to, to USC, which is one of the top universities in Los Angeles, and having access to that. You know, there were very few of us in that at Magnolia Elementary that had access to, to a university and to students through, like, a camping program for um, under, you know, for, um, ur- like, an urban community. Um, um, and I think I was always just really curious about, like, why not us? Like, why not everyone? Like, I think that's always just been part of my personality. Um, and the persistence, you know, I think I've been super persistent to, to explore that. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I dropped out of high school. Um, I, I was pushed out of high school, you know, through, through like, all of those experiences. Um, and I started to work at a very young age. Um, but I think, I think I always had that curiosity. And I ended up, thought, you know, getting back, figuring out the track and how to get back. Um, and then I think over time is, you know, was, I, was, I also learned about um, popular education uh, while at UCLA uh, through uh, one of my mentors. Uh, Yana Shady Hernandez at UCLA, and um, and she also connected me to uh, in, in the Instituto de Educación Popular de Sud California, DEPSCA. Um, you know, this is an organization that uh, used the methodology as part of like their mission um, in partnering with you know the day laborers and household workers to be able to change their, their own conditions. So I had a lot of exposure, but I think it also had to do with having access to people along the way too. Like it didn't happen on my own, you know? Um, so I was lucky to be able to find those connections along the way and the supports. Um, so I think that's for me internally, I think it's something that I bring in um, where I, I recognize the, the position and the privilege of my position now to, to challenge those practices. And, you know, it's not easy. I think there's, even as an organization that has, adopted this approach over 10 years ago. Um, I could, you know, give you a number of examples how we're, how, how we're constantly having to challenge those mind, you know, those mental models um, that, 
that, you know, that could uh, impact, you know, we hire community residents to do, to serve in our, in our, in our staffing structure. So it's always a challenge to even just uh, have an institution as large as ours to recognize the skill sets that they bring in um, and to create the conditions where uh, they feel that they're part of. Um, but, you know, so there's always, um, there's, it, it's, it does, it's not stagnant. I think there's just something that my, in my role, Carlos, the managers, where we're constantly being vigilant and ensuring that uh, there's a, there's the mind shift and an adaptation in, in practices, in values uh, by everyone in the organizations. And I, and I, I think we're, we've, we've come a long way, definitely, um, in the last 10 years, but there's still work to be done. You know, I think there's, there's work that we're even doing internally to, to understand like how we're, our practices, you know, are aligned to like white supremacy notions. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's built. It's like, we have to go through like what Carlos always talks about, like the decolonization of those ideals as well. Um, And there's, and it's a process that we're currently going through um, in the organization and that Carlos is a part of um, that we're lucky that he's, he's there to represent um, those that methodology as well. Right. Great. Well, you know, you both talked about the, the process, um, you know, into both internally of the self and the institution. Um, I'm interested to hear, you know, what was the, the external response, um, you know, to, to the process of authentic community partnership? Um, you know, how did the partners respond and how did the community respond as well? I mean, I can start, Carlos. Um, you know, I think there's 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 intentionality for us to even change. Like we we I don't we don't I, I agree with the term of parent or community engagement anymore because I think it was clear that the way we were talking about parent engagement, like we all had a complete different definition. Um, I think that's something that's been really critical in our work when we even just talk about values. Like we need to break it down. Like. Uh, what does this look like in operations? Like, explain it to me. Um, and I think that's, it. you know, there's been moments of, um, even with our, our closest partners, whether there's a disagreement, because you're talking about the way someone behaves, even, you know, it's, you're asking folks to kind of like stretch themselves to imagine something different. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, um, it was really new, you know, because, they all have good intentions. You know, I think a lot of fo- folks fall in this line of work because of their own personal experiences. Um, so I think there was a, you know, at, at the beginning, it felt like it was, um, you know, you started, people could, you know, be, it, there could be a little bit of defensiveness because it may feel like you're questioning their values. Um, but I think what was important to do is to talk about like, okay, like if we want to reach this outcome, it's like you have to talk about it with, and imagine and walk through what that process would look like at the end. Um, and it, I think the folks that stayed um, were curious and, and were open to exploring and trying it and then deciding at that point if it worked or not just shoot it down. Um, and I, I want to see like a, a number of organizational partners they evolved, you know, I think they went through their own reflections and, the, and they shifted and they transformed as and they continue to transform as a result of their own biases. Cause I think you, you start to notice how your own biases show up. Um, 
but there has to definitely be an openness to at least be able to explore. Um, and I think there's still some partners that, you know, um, are still learning along the way. I think what the reason why it's not challenged as much anymore is because the residents are leading it now. So how do you even question the residents? You know, I think that they're willing to always question me, challenge me, which is fine. But I always direct them to the residents. And then how do you question them at that point? Okay. Mm-hmm. I think what, what I would add is um, to your question, Christine, I think it's, it's finding that delicate balance between the urgency, because things are urgent, literally on the ground for the residents that we partner with. And then the what I'm going to call the unlearning curve for institutions, public agencies, um, public entities. I think, um, again, it's, it's one of those things where, where like, um, you know, I, I share about my own process and my own learning because I don't ever want folks to feel that I'm unem- unempathetic to what it takes to move in thinking, particularly in thinking, and particularly when we live in a, in a society that really, really promotes the idea of meritocracy, the idea that if you work really hard, you'll be able to achieve whatever you want. But again, that's a complete um, ignoring of the conditions that create our outcomes. But if you internalize it, then you'll be, you'll, you basically bought in and you will never hold systems accountable because if you failed, it's ultimately your own personal failure. Now you expand that to communities and you say communities are failures. So I think, so I, so I say that because the urgency is real. People are literally, right now during COVID, people are literally dying. They're literally dying and they're overwhelmingly dying in higher percentages in black and brown communities in all of the United States and all over the world even. Yeah. I said, so I think that's important. I think, so, so I say that primarily, I, I will be honest, I think that's primarily with the institutions and the organizations. I think there's a critical shift in thinking and then in practices, as Brenda alluded to earlier. And the funny thing is, is with residents, it's, it's a lot easier. For residents, it's primarily um, working with them to understand their worth and their power and to step into that and to say, actually, my opinion does matter. And this organization should listen to what I have to say. If I am the one who's supposed to be supported by this organization, by this institution, by this entity, then I have an obligation not just to let them know but to dem- to communicate the the will and the interest of the communities that I come from as well. So I think it's, you know, I guess if I were to simplify it, I think for residents, it's about stepping into their power and for organizations and institutions, it's about sharing power. So I think I would, I would sum it up like that. Yeah. No, perfectly said. You know, um, I know we talked a lot about, you know, the, the, the process of, you know, and the importance of authentic community partnership. Um, but can you talk about, you know, why is community partnership essential in our work? Um, and what does community engagement, and I know, Carlos, you alluded to that, um, but, you know, what does community engagement afford people in the community? Maybe we talk about share power, you know, better, you know, um, maybe have outcomes for people, but what are the other things that we need to be thinking about um, as we're, you know, bringing in people to partner with, with us? The things that we need to keep thinking about as we bring in folks to partner with us. I mean, again, I mean, a lot of the things that we've already said, right, to begin, it's just, you know, again, are, are we truly seeing folks as partners in this or not, right? Are we interrogating our own biases and how those biases play themselves out in our practices every day? So I think, um, I think Brenda, I'm going to go back to Brenda's point that it's like, um, if you, if you focus on people's intent, then there would be nothing to change. I, I, I fully, fully believe in people's inherent good. Like I, I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe in people's inherent good. 
the fact that people want to do well, that they want to do good work, that they want good outcomes for the communities that they serve or that they work with, right? But it's funny because the communities that they serve, that's not a partnership. It's like, I'm here to serve you. You are here to be served by me. I think those paradigms need to shift as well. Um, I think... um, I think I also think about it in the in terms of like a of a of an ecosystem, right? Like, what is the environment that makes it ripe for something like that to change? Um, and I think how do I say this? If you if you are in partnership with folks, and if you take the steps to be in partnership, folks, you are getting live daily information about what the community needs on a daily basis, or what the community is communicating on a daily basis. So again, you have like a you have a continuous loop of information, right? That goes, that is not just um, from institutions back to residents, but from the community members themselves into institutions. So what that would mean is that organizations and institutions are, are, are reacting live and they're not reacting to their assumptions about, about um, communities. And I think um, we've had conversations in the past, for example, where um, it was really difficult during, it's been really difficult during the pandemic to partner with the residents we partner with because we're not able to meet with them in person. So then we thought, well, let's, let's see if we can secure some funding. And, you know, we're grateful to First 5 LA for being flexible with the funding to be able to allow us to provide tablets for the residents that we work with. Um, but once the residents got their tablets, we found out they didn't know how to use them. They didn't know how to set up a, an ID with them. They weren't able to, to reset their passwords. So I think we were looking at assumptions that made our work easier, not their lives easier. And I think, again, well-intentioned. Our intentions were amazing. We, I, I feel like Brenda was able to work magic over there and get the funding to be, to be um, reallotted, to be able to make a purchase like that. The residents were incredibly grateful. But at the end of the day, it took about three months of just supporting them to be able to use the tablets to begin with, to then to be able to meet. And we're still in the middle of that right now. So I, I use that as an example because that's the, I don't know. I think for a lot of folks, they it would have been a transaction. Here's your tablet. We're meeting in two weeks. That's it. Figure that's, it out. Yeah, that's not, that's not what it looks like with us. You know, right. we, have a, we have a team of promotoras who are former residents who used to be participants, who used to be partners in that way. Now they're facilitators for this process, and they're the ones that are consistently in touch with them because they understand the reality, they understand the conditions, and they have an incredible amount of know-how and expertise and skill sets that allow them to do that. So, sorry, I feel like I'm going into the weeds a little bit, but I think that's what partnership looks like in practice. No, that's perfect. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to, um, you know, really talking about, you know, what is the risk of not having authentic community partnerships, in your opinion? We're living it now. I mean, I think if, let's say if systems, institutions had this approach, like even five years back, like what would, yeah, I just, I wonder what, what would a, a pandemic have looked like? Like that we didn't, couldn't control that, right? But if you think about, I mean, we saw it firsthand. You know, we, we've been leading these collaborative efforts for a number of years. And um, when it when the pandemic hit, it was like the communities that we served that were the, the ones that were hit um, and families started to die. You know, they had found the, the, the sole providers of the families were dying. Um, and we had to shift the way that we did our work. We had to advocate for the use of funds to provide folks with 
basic essential items, food, diapers, sanitary items, because they couldn't access anything in their communities. And, you know, we saw, we saw the conditions that, that the store, their local stores, like there were just, there wasn't anything on the, on the shelves. Um, and, you know, so we had to step in to support in that role, you know, and it, it wasn't, it's not our role to support with those gaps. Like, I think that's, that's something that we continue to, to explore, to see, like, how do we start to transition back? It's been a year plus, and we're still serving as, we're doing distributions every two weeks with 16 other organizations across this large geographic region. Um, but if we don't do it, I think the question is, like, who it, who's going to do it, you know, and how will, like, who's going to finally, like, step in and to say, like, we need to, what are we taking from what we're learning? We, you know, we do, like, we continue to surveys, we're gathering data, we're presenting it to institutions and we're still waiting for someone to raise their hand to say, like, I got it. You know, we got it. Like, thank you for supporting. Like, that's our job. Um, but if those if those partnerships are happening since the beginning, I, I, I do wonder, like, how responsive would they have been or, or would, you know, to be able to to um, prepare for something like a disaster like this? Like, like how, what, what would they have mitigated beforehand? to be able to to have like a, a, a network of supports or, you know, or even just information and the trust to be able to provide information like on time uh, so that there wouldn't be misinformation circulating and gaps of information. I think that's something that we also experience. like the, the amount of time it took for accurate information to reach the communities and, the, and their preferred communication style. Um, that's where we had to fill in those gaps. And, and, we're, and I'm talking about a small percentage of us reaching a small percentage of the population in Los Angeles County. You know, so I think that's, that's, that's the hope um, in these recovery efforts to continue to, to advocate for just those, these types of authentic partnerships with, between institutions directly with, with the folks that they're, that they're serving, not hold us as, nonprofit organizations to fill in that gap, that's not our role. And, and our role should shift. You know, I think our role would definitely shift and we're, we're open to that. And, and I think that really speaks to, you know, the importance of having, you know, the, the, the relationships and the trust, you know, with community. Um, you know, it, it was already hard enough and people were already struggling before COVID. Um, and it was only highlighted and exasperated even more with COVID. Um, so, yeah, that, that really, really speaks on the importance of, of, of having those connections and partnerships with community and, and the response that you all continue to give, um, and, and, you know, in partnership and in support with community. Um, so, Christina, if you don't yeah, mind, just adding something really quickly, I think, sure. to your question about what's the risk, and I think, um, I think Brenda answered it perfectly, but I would say, like, I, I think on the most benign end, you know, we were outside of COVID, the most benign, like the least probably impactful to some people. I think what you would have is you lose key information that's necessary to do your best work possible. That's like on the least offensive side of it, right? On the most offensive side of it, on the most, you know, virulent side of it, you're talking about continuing generations and, and of historical harm. You know, you're just doing it over and you're repeating the same thing over and over and over again. And it's the same people who continue to face the deepest impacts. I think you spoke about the fact that COVID just exacerbated conditions for the communities that we work with. And it's absolutely true. And I think the communities that a lot of us come from as well. I think, you know, we hear a lot of, um, last thing I'll say about that is um, I have a personal 
a personal dislike of resilience or resilience capital. You know, I see it, um, I see it utilized, I think, in mental health, in the mental health profession. And I understand that there's a very specific way in which it's utilized. But more and more, we, we hear it used in relation to trying to uplift our, our communities and say they're so resilient. Look at them. They work so hard. They can get through anything. Well, but there's no analysis of, like, why is it always the same communities that have to demonstrate resilience? So resilience is is something that you draw upon in moments of need or in moments of crisis. It's not a lifestyle. But our communities are not only being called resilient, but they're being fetishized as such, which is incredibly offensive. And that's the way stereotypes work, right? Like if you think you're giving someone a compliment with a stereotype, it's like there's no such thing as a good stereotype. Either way, you're putting a community in a box and you're not letting them outside of that. Uh, thank you for saying that, Carlos. That is that is. That is so true. Our communities continue to be, like you said, fetishized over resiliency. And I, I remember um, looking at data points with organizations and really talking about, you know, how, you know, resiliency is it, 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 a positive trait of our communities um, and really feeling proud of, of saying that. Um, and I remember there was a community member at the table who, you know, spoke up and said, you know, we have no other choice. <laughs> You know what? What what is, what is the alternative, right? Is it is it just to you know give up and and just you know die easily, or is it or is it to fight every day, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think you know, um, thank you both, you know, for just such fruitful thoughts and conversation. Um, you know, so for organizations, so for organizations who are interested in community partnership. How would you recommend them getting started? What are two to three pieces they can begin with? So the first one would definitely be funding. Like we've had the privilege again to be able to fund it by, you know, we've had the, an investment from a funder. First Five Aleda has invested in this approach for 10 plus years with Metro Lake alone. And then, um, and they also invested in 13 other communities about eight years later, I believe. So there's been like ongoing support and, and, and the structure and the staffing structure and the, and the capacity building, strengthening supports for over 10 years, which is really unheard of again. But this is like an opportunity to advocate and to educate funders about the benefits of, of a long-term investment. Um, when we came in into Best Start, you know, there have been a number of organizations that had tried to attempt to do something similar. And I think those are the questions that a lot of the, the residents had. Like, they're, they're really aware about those types of temporary investments that happen. And, and, you know, we had to build a lot of trust to be able to get people to, to trust us to come in to attempt to do something else. Because they were afraid that we were just going to extract and that we were going to leave again two years later. And then you have another nonprofit that has to try to rebuild that again. So there has to be a long-term investment, especially when the developing trust and the relationships to lead to action takes time. That takes time. It took us at least the first two years to try to attempt to even put the structure, the trust, and plans in place to be able to get there. And plans that could be modified because, again, we're talking about people's real-life experiences that these lives that, you know, when people are trying, imagine trying to partner with someone while they're still, you know, they're, they have barriers, like the funding has to be able to be responsive and, 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 um, and not, as, um, not as strict 
to be able to make those shifts, but continue to continue to be on track by while also addressing those barriers that are happening. The second one I would say is um, looking, I think organizations and institutions to, should look to those who have already put something in place that's working. Um, we had to, we didn't have a guide. You know, I think that was also like the risk of not having um, a model that we could have at least turn to, to be able to put into practice. Um, again, like you don't want to waste two years of trying to create something from scratch because you want to be able to make uh, at least immediate impact to then be able to, to include like what you're learning along the way and you modify it to what's, what's true to the experience of what, what the, the folks that are invested. Um, I've seen this happen again. You know, I think that's one of my critiques to our funder. Um, I, I, I wish they would um, uh, maybe even use us more as like a, a guide for others. Because, again, ultimately, we want to make sure that the communities that they're serving um, have the most success and, and that they shouldn't start from scratch with them. You know, that's where we were, we were supposed to be a roadmap. Um, and we have the roadmap that's been tested. And you know, we're now scaling in three other communities. And, you know, we, we want, it's popular education again, and the idea is that it's, you should be able to share this with others so that they also are learning and, and can have the same success. So we're really open to be, being able to share or to look across the nation to see what else is working. That's being built by people who um, reflect the communities that are being served. I think that's one thing that it has to be by people of color that have, have tested this and that know that it aligns and it supports our, our, our own people as well. Christina, I know you said two to three, but I have two more on top of Brenda's too. I'll make it yeah, quick though. Yeah, bring it. I mean, I think, that, I think the third one for me is data. Um, data, is really, data is really, really important because it has the potential to, again, to, to challenge the, the narrative and serve as a counter narrative, or again, it has the potential to, to exacerbate the harm as well. So I think for one, um, if you're in partnership with community members, then I think what you do is you start by um, creating spaces for those residents to speak about their experiences. And um, and at a certain point, what you have is you have a, a, a foundation of data that speaks to what it is that you're trying to address. The other thing is you also have to bring in secondary data that residents as partners are able to look at together with you as a partner to extrapolate meaning and make sense of. You have to do that together. Um, I think the challenge in that is that secondary data can be criminalizing or demonizing in nature. So like, for example, if you're looking at an issue, um, I don't know, an issue like crime, for example, if the data that you're going to bring in is data that talks about how many people of color are arrested, the, the length of the terms of those arrests, then those are just, those are just data points that are going to continue to criminalize the communities that you're working with. Instead, what you can bring in, however, is what are the comparisons of people that are being criminalized in a community of color, for example, versus an affluent white community? Um, what are the what are the what is the recidivism rates of people that go into jail so that you could in, so that you can make sense of whether a jail is actually doing what it's supposed to do, which is um, which is take you through a path to recovery, whatever that recovery is, or is it forcing you into a life of um, of poor decisions? So, like, I think you have to be really, really careful as to what is the data that you are using, because like anyone else, people in the communities that we work with, they have their own internalized biases, because that's the way, that's the nature of oppression. Oppression makes you believe that you are personally responsible for all of your 
out, outcomes in your life, right? So I, I would say that. And then the last one, I think Brenda alluded to this a little bit, is there are tons of people out there who know how to do this work already. Tons of people out there who know how to do this work already. I think you have to hire the right way. And I think this is honestly like a really, really honest conversation that we need to talk about in all of our institutions and all of our organizations is that there is a legitimate barrier of trying to educate people who are currently in positions of power and influence as opposed to hiring the people who already know how to do it. I think there's a legitimate fear of people being around, feeling irrelevant, feeling like, you know, my intentions are good. Why can't I do this? Um, I don't want to be cut out of this opportunity. So instead, what we're doing is we're centering the needs of those people who are coming from incredible privilege at the cost of the outcomes for the communities that we're meant to serve. It's a real, real conversation that we need to have that is um, honestly a, a, a huge barrier. Um, there's a lot, of a, a lot of focus right now on anti-bias trainings, for example, for organizations. I don't think anyone needs an anti-bias training to know that we're all biased. That's it. We all carry our biases every day. Whether I have a bias for wearing long socks or for short socks or a bias for wanting to live in, in communities that are warmer versus colder, all of us have those biases. You just apply race, gender, sexuality to them, and then there's real impacts for communities. So I think it would be a, a, we would definitely have to focus on educating or unlearning of those key staff members within organizations and institutions that uphold these institutional biases um, if there weren't people out in the community who actually know how to do the work. But that's not the case. Right. That's not the case. Just because someone in an organization heard a term or a concept for the first time doesn't mean that the world has in, isn't aware of that forever, especially for communities that have been disinvested and oppressed for years. Yeah. So I say that's my fourth one. Oh, love that. Um, and to close us off and to the point on, um, you know, there's models out there, there's, there's people who know what they're talking about, there's all this expertise um, that folks can, um, you know, look for um, or, or get access to. Um, and so this question goes for both of you. Um, what would you tell people who are interested in learning more about community partnership, authentic community partnership, um, you know, to, to read, what are some resources that are out there, maybe some, um, you know, authors, um, you know, around community partnership, you know, what are some recommendations we can give people? Sorry, Brenda, but I would recommend Brenda. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, for real, like, you know, I, I came in here to Para Los Niños two years ago and was immediately, like, I felt like there was a, there was an alignment at the values level um, that I just really was able to connect to immediately. But I have to say my biases have really been challenged since I've been here. You know, I, I you know, when I say, I'll, it's not like a do as I say, not as I do thing. Like, I recognize that. I myself have worked with residents in a very transactional way in the past, you know, and, and it's very, and I've had an infantilizing approach that I've really needed to challenge on my own. And I, and I really am grateful to Brenda and the team that have been putting in this work for quite some time. So I think it's, um, I honestly feel that it's a, it's a, it's a jewel that isn't recognized for what it is very often. And I also, you know, and I share this with Brenda and the rest of the team. I say, you all are so in the work that you don't recognize how dope you all are sometimes, you know, and, yeah. and, um, and I, you know, and mind you, like I now am part of that and I, and I get to um, do that from the inside out. So I think there's that, I think there, and to that point, I think there's a lot of community practices that have been put in place that, have, that our communities have 
done for years and for generations in resistance. Just like there is, has been oppression historically, there has been movements of resistance historically. Yeah. But we don't hear about those too much, but those have always been there. They have always been there from the beginning. So I think a historical understanding of what those have looked like, being led by people who have led these movements in the past is really important. I think, you know, I, I think earlier you asked us about popular education. So there's Paulo Freire. I think um, understanding the, the roots of popular education, you know, I think a lot of folks in my circles talk about pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, as a as a book that folks will it's a very very difficult read for sure <laughs> but it's a but it's a worthwhile read um i read i go back to it a lot because i'm still trying to make sense of a lot of pieces i think um understanding intersectionality and critical race theory looking at works of like authors like um like kimberly crenshaw for example i think is really really important um i think also um one of the people that i that i kind of look to for the uh, um what do you call it? Uh, John A. Powell, who's part of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, I think has some really interesting and fascinating stuff on, on just like this idea of who gets to belong in society and who doesn't. And I think, um, I don't, I, I'm not going to say that we draw from that consistently, but I think we see ourselves as like in, in kinship with those folks and that thinking. Um, and then I think if folks want to, I think they can look at documentaries, like I believe one of them on Netflix, uh, Ava DuVernay one is like the 13th Amendment, for example, or the 13th, yeah. that, speak, that speaks about how these things work systemically or systemic in nature. So I think um, that's a way to kind of like get like a well-rounded perspective of like how, no matter how good our intentions are, if we're acting individually and thinking transactionally, then we're very unlikely to change these things over the long term. So I, I would start with those. Thanks, Carlos. So, uh, Brenda, so one of the, you're one of the recommended um, authors and experts here, um, but what are some of yours that you would like to share? I think, you know, uh, Carlos, you mentioned, yeah, for me, it was a uh, uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, which is a hard read, but I think just being able, to, I, I, I uh, often question, like myself, like, what, like, what does this look like in the in the way that it was put in paper too? Like um, when we meet, when you know, when we're, we we hit like those nuances in our in our work. Um, but yeah, I I definitely recommend it. Uh, I think the other one that has made like a lasting impression. I think that's also how I, what I'm using and checking my own biases now is um how to be an anti-racist, um by Abram Kendi. Uh, I think, and Carlos, you, you've spoken about this too. I think sometimes like people's attitudes, like to wait for people's attitudes to change. Um, it only happens if there's like laws and policies and practice first, like it has to be put in place first. And then people, like you say, Carlos, unfortunately, if you, you know, people respond to policies and laws more, you know, than to, to expecting people to just open themselves up. Um, and he speaks a lot about this. Um, I think that's, that's helped me to think about how we could respond and be more proactive to the urgency of, of the, of the situation that we're living in right now, that we can't afford to wait for people's minds to change. Um, we need to start, we need to have more action that could lead to better policies and practices so that people can then follow. Um. Uh, that 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 one really helped me to just even resonate again and to think about like how is it that I how does how do I uh, contribute to that in my everyday 
work as someone in a position of power as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, uh, Brenda and Carlos. So um, I think I, I was reading an article um, on authentic community partnership recently, and there was a quote um, by Reverend Dr. William, William Barber um, that really spoke to me, um, and I think it really encapsulates what you both said and when you really talked about authentic community partnership and that re- relationships we develop with our coalition partners must be transformative, not transactional. Uh, so I'd like to focus off with that message um, with everyone listening. And so again, Brenda and Carlos, thank you so much uh, for your time. And, and this was a, a great conversation to have and sharing your knowledge um, with all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Christina. Yeah, thanks, Christina, and Health Leads and everyone for the invitation. Thank you for joining the QI Chat Room podcast. We appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you have suggested future topics, please email mperrey at rchc.net. And please follow us, the Redwood Community Health Coalition, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye for now. Till next time on the QI Chat Room. Mm-hmm.